Hey, y'all. I'm Erin Haynes, the host of The Amendment, a brand new weekly podcast on gender, politics, and power brought to you by the 19th News and Wonder Media Network. You've probably heard the news that this election year, our democracy is at stake. On The Amendment, I'm breaking down what that actually means, specifically for the marginalized folks who depend on our democracy the most. This is a show that dives past the headlines and gets clear on the unfinished work of our democracy. Listen to The Amendment now, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, it's Amara, and you're listening to The Trans Hash Podcast, a show where we tell trans stories to save trans lives. Today, I'm doing something a little different. I'm going to share another podcast with you that I think you'll enjoy. We're going to hear an episode of Transcripts, a show about how trans people are remaking the world. The show is hosted by Andrea Jenkins, the first Black openly trans woman elected to political office in the U.S. You might have heard our interview with Andrea last year on the Translash podcast, as well as Merle Beam, an assistant professor of gender, sexuality, and women's studies at Virginia Commonwealth University. This episode, you're going to hear about trans people living in the South, like Atlanta, where I grew up. Andrea and Merle speak with trans people in Virginia, Georgia, Louisiana, and Tennessee, who are fighting to make their homes welcoming for each other. There are some really heartfelt stories here, and I can't wait for you to hear them. After you listen, please remember to subscribe to Transcripts wherever you get your podcasts. This is just a note that this episode contains sensitive topics like sexual violence and police abuse. So please take care of yourself while you're listening. It was really surreal to watch. SWAT and police were arresting people in my backyard. They were setting off flash bombs a block away from my house. There were car fires and car explosions. I would look out my back door and there was a car on fire. I'd look out my front door and there was SWAT shooting rubber bullets at crowds of, of people protesting. That frustration that, that was initially triggered then got compounded on a feedback loop every night that the state would try to oppress civil disobedience. Welcome back to Transcripts. Since our last episode dropped, we've watched so many of our major cities experience uprisings against police brutality. And trans people were a major part of this movement. My queer identity fostered my activist identity because essentially what I'm doing as an activist is trying to clear barriers for myself and anyone else who's coming behind me. We're based in Minneapolis, and so we definitely felt the impact of this summer's uprisings in our neighborhoods. Oh yes, being on the Minneapolis City Council here, I felt it deeply in my soul. And those of you in Portland or New York or Chicago, you felt it too. For Aurora Higgs, this movement was historic in more ways than one. 
She's a trans activist based in Richmond, Virginia. You know, the capital of the Confederacy. When you see the monuments that are dedicated to Confederate quote-unquote heroes, you think, okay, well, I'm guessing that that place, if I were Black, it'd be really hard for me to just like walk down the street or, God forbid, be queer. But what Aurora told us about being Black and trans and in the middle of the uprisings in Virginia... Well, that's not what Richmond is. Richmond is a lot sneakier than that. That sneakiness, that duality between the South as a changing landscape full of newly blue states and -and up-and-coming cities, and the South as the former Confederacy, that's a tension that shapes the lives of trans-Southerners today. Places that can seem welcoming can actually reject you. But also, places that can seem like they'd be hostile can be places where trans life has taken root and flourished. We interviewed people from Georgia and Alabama and Louisiana and Virginia, people whose families survived slavery and settler colonialism, people who've been on the front lines of struggle, not just this summer, but for hundreds of years. And in the South, we found trans people fighting to make their homes welcoming for all. Even when finding home or even finding a place to stay hasn't been easy. Being kicked out at 17, I had nothing. Oh, I won't be able to share this with nobody. I've always found the greatest joy and the biggest reasons to live right here in New Orleans. I live in a community that is entrenched in Black history. I wanted to know who God was and where God was. We'd go sit outside in the yard. We take care of each other. We will feed each other. We will house each other. Like, we've always done that. The future holds 20 tiny homes. That's one thing for sure. This is Transcripts. I found a way. One thing that not a lot of people know about the South, it's home to the highest population of LGBTQ people in the country, according to the Williams Institute at UCLA. Of course, you wouldn't know this from looking at mainstream representations of the South. And part of the reason for that disconnect between who the media sees as a Southerner and the diverse group of peoples that have made their homes here for generations, it's because claiming the South as your own can bring up old wounds. The trauma really for a lot of us lives here. Tony Michelle is a black woman of trans experience who's lived in Atlanta, Georgia and Richmond, Virginia. When I spoke to her in 2017, she was working for the Solutions Not Punishment Collaborative, aka SNAPCO. We are a Black, trans, and queer-led organization dedicated to empowering Black trans folks in the city. And Um, she told me about this one early moment of figuring out that she was different. I was watching Crookland with my grandma, Uh um, and it's that scene with RuPaul. You remember that scene with RuPaul and Cricklin? You know the Cricklin? I've seen it. Yes, many times. Spike Lee's movie. Yeah. And RuPaul, he's in the corner store 
with um, the Hispanic guy. And in the beginning of it, Troy, the young girl who's the story centered around, mm-hmm. she right. went to um, the corner store and they was going to steal. They, that's the, the scene where they sold the potato chips. And she stuffed herself with the potato chips mm-hmm. and then the guy, you know, scared and was like, don't ever steal from my store again. I'll whoop you. But RuPaul was in that scene. And he was just like, um, um, he was like, you don't touch him, you puta, you puta. It's so, but he was in full drag. I keep my panty clean. Oh, come on, Connie. No, 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 Tito. You crazy. So my grandma baby was like, um, y'all know that's a man. Oh, you know, okay. you, we were on the bed. She was like, y'all know that's a man, don't y'all? That's a drag queen. <laughs> so in my mind, I was like, everybody was going to lay face her and all right. that, my little cousins and stuff. And my face was like, oh, it's possible. Yes. Y'all said that I was a man and I can look like RuPaul. <laughs> oh my God, I can be a girl. Oh. And I just kind of like, and it was a black movie. It was like a total Southern black moment in my right. life. Uh-huh. And I was just like, oh wow. Um, and I had a lot of shame at the same time because mm-hmm. I saw everybody, how everybody's face was turning right. and how my grandma said it, you know, like, I know that's a man, you know, right. so it was like, even, so that was, those were one of the moments of low-key trauma, right, yeah. that like, I'm experiencing like this joy. joy of like seeing myself or thinking that I see myself mm-hmm. for the first time mm-hmm. or seeing possibility for me and at the same time experiencing like the energy of n- not belonging, the energy of like hate or disgust mm-hmm. that like surrounded me. And so it was like one of those moments too that I like felt like, oh, I won't be able to share this with nobody. So many times in our interviews with trans Southerners, we heard this mixture of joy, trauma, Deep history and contemporary struggle. When I say trauma, I mean just pain that has been in your life, pain that has been taught to you, mm-hmm. taught Talk, to yes. you, handed you know, down, like handed like down, like yeah. DNA that teaches you to shut up, mm-hmm. to not share, to fear sharing, to fear releasing, to fear asking or making requests of the things that you need. Mm-hmm. You know, like I struggle with all of those things. Like when I just think about trauma that affects your voice, like trauma that really, like I said, shuts you up, shuts you down, causes you to close up and like go away. Um, And yeah, I think that just black folks have a lot of, a lot of that. Kaya Concepcion knows about intergenerational trauma, too. They're a mixed native black and white trans femme person from Marietta, Georgia. I grew up with a mother who was a crack cocaine addict and, um, and a father who was absent. My mom's half white, mm-hmm. um, which is a long, complicated story. Um, she's one of 11 children. Um, she's the oldest and um, she has a different father than the rest of them. If you ever mention that or her father to her, you will be asked to leave her house in a not so nice way. My grandma worked for him. So it's one of those like, you know, like 1945, William Faulkner kind of like one of those stories. We were literally so poor that we lived in a trailer that had plastic on the windows and we shat in a bucket that we had to take out in the woods to like throw out. That's how poor my mother's situation was Mm -hmm. while she pursued her crack cocaine habit. 
So um, I left home at 14 and um, I kind of bounced around from couch to couch. Kaya had to find a new home and a new family. And then um, I, met, I met a prostitute who I won't say her name, but she was amazing. Mm -hmm. um, and she taught me the trade. Mm -hmm. She was my sex educator. She taught me how to live on the streets. She taught me everything I knew about selling drugs, about selling my body. She taught me that I was in control of that situation. Um, she taught me what consent looked like. She taught me um, the best ways to de-escalate incidences that could turn into physical, um, physical abuse or even rape, though I didn't mm -hmm. dodge them all the time. Um, I feel like I dodged a lot of them because of the information that she gave me. And um, I spent the next two years living and working with her. Wow. Mm -hmm. In Atlanta? Um, no, this was rural Georgia. Georgia. <laughs> You'd be surprised at things that happened in rural Georgia, yeah. And Kaya also had something else that kept her alive during the hard times in rural Georgia. Something she could draw up in her memory when things got rough the connection she'd built with her great-grandmother and the land where she'd made her home. On Sundays, I had two choices. I could either go to church or I could go hang out with my grandmother's mother, who was a full-blooded indigenous woman across the street. And so, I mean, let me see. The old pipe-smoking indigenous woman across the street or the minister. I'm gonna go hang out with grandma, <laughs> you know, like I'm so, um, so my, my native experience, um, is one of, um, is a dislocated, you know, the story of a dislocated indigenous woman, um, who crossed the color line to marry someone who was mostly black, but who had some indigenous blood in him. And, um, I just remember listening to her tell me, you know, that about how there was no God in that building over there. That if I wanted to know who God was and where God was, you know what I mean? We would, yeah, we'd, we'd go sit outside in the yard and we would do things like garden. She would teach me how to cook. And she would just talk to me about like, you know, just give me like histories of what it was like growing up like she did, you know, in the rural South. And she was this beautiful woman. And I just remember thinking, you know, one day I hope, I hope I'm that beautiful. They just recently named the street that she lived on between the church and her house. They just named it after her. Kaya's great-grandmother is now part of the geography of rural Georgia. Her name marks a place that people can come home to. But that tension between having roots and being uprooted, between being at home in the South and struggling for home in the South. It's like how Toni Michelle felt when she saw RuPaul in Crooklyn for the first time. Joy and trauma seem to occupy the same spaces. They both live within you. Never really, like, having a home. Um, I'm sorry. <laughs> Never having a home, but always wanting to find a home and always desperately looking for love and, like, a family while also discovering who I am. I experienced um, abuse from adults and other kids. And um, sometimes I think about now where I am and I just don't even understand or really know how I survived. Today we have some great speakers with you, including myself, Mariah Moore. I work for the Transgender Law Center based in Oakland, California. It's the largest trans
Mariah Moore is one of the many trans activists we spoke to whose experience of intergenerational trauma left her without a place to live, despite her family's deep connection to their home place in Louisiana. I was born in New Orleans, Louisiana. However, a lot of the roots to my family live in Madisonville, Louisiana, which is about 30 minutes uh, north of New Orleans on the North Shore. And so I did a lot of growing up there. That's where a lot of my childhood took place. Like many Black families in the South, you know, when we talk about racism and poverty and you know, I've just, I've seen and experienced so many of those things. My mother died when I was 14. My father was an alcoholic. And so I really just, I, I grew up so fast. To survive, Mariah got into sex work as a teenager after her mother passed away. But like Kaya, she found a different kind of family. Once I really started to be able to identify or like verbalize who I was, like to verbalize my transness and to really have a profound understanding of like, I'm, this is not weird. This is not, I'm not, not normal. I'm very normal. This is normal. I was able to verbalize my normal thing. I think that my trans mom, my first, trans mom. Her name was Tatiana Crochet and she, she passed away almost 10 years ago. She showed me everything that I could be. She showed me who I was. She showed me the possibility that, you know, this was a life that was possible and that I could see my future. Before I could put a name to how I was feeling or verbalize how I was feeling, I couldn't see a future for myself and I didn't know, you know, what what my life would hold or what it would become because I didn't even know who I was. And so she was one of my inspirations. She guided me and showed me who I was and helped me become Mariah. The support system that Mariah built, trans women making homes with other trans women, that's what helped her stay alive. Sisterhoods like these have long legacies within the trans community. Our activist foremothers like Sylvia Rivera and Marsha P. Johnson also built collective spaces for trans and gender-fabulous sex workers. But it was tragedy, the loss of one of those sisters, that propelled Mariah to fight for justice. So really the tipping point for me was when my sister China Gibson was murdered. Um, and the, the just the the huge impact that she had, not only in New Orleans, but nationwide, because she was an entertainer. She's a dancing doll of the South, and I'm not mad at her. She's about to dance the house down. I need everybody to show some show me state love. She is Miss Tate Dupree. If you were from New Orleans growing up, you looked up to someone like China because she was so talented. She was a dancer. She was beautiful. And she was just so kind. And so when she was murdered, I just thought, like, if China can be murdered, if something like this could happen to her, then surely this will happen to me.
What Mariah knew was her people needed safe housing. In trans people in the South, people who have experienced racism, poverty, violence, criminalization, they need it now. So Mariah got to work. The House of Tulip, which is a new organization in New Orleans, which I helped co-found, is going to be a long-term housing solution for trans and gender non-conforming folks in Louisiana, more specifically New Orleans, where we will help folks either finish or start school. We will assist our siblings that are re-entering from the prison industrial complex. Uh, we will also help our siblings who are aging out of foster care. We will leave no rock unturned when it comes to our community. And it's the first of its kind here in Louisiana specifically that will be led by us for us and hopefully with an infrastructure to sustain itself once we are no longer here. So now, Mariah's made her own home in New Orleans, a place where she and her sisters can find joy. I always found my way back to New Orleans. I always found love in New Orleans. Even when I didn't have family or biological family who loved me, I always found a family in New Orleans. Even throughout everything that I've experienced, I've always found the greatest joy um, and the biggest reasons to live right here in New Orleans. Whether it's from the art, the people, the food, there's always something here that comforts me. simple like we will feed each other we will house each other we will make sure that we're cared for like we've always done this even when I think about Tatiana like even before I was able to verbalize what mutual aid was that was a type of mutual aid she took me in and helped me grow and made sure that I was safe we're always doing that for one another and also not just amongst one another, but we put the call out to other folks, like allies, cis allies, like, hey, you all need to get involved. You all need to do something. This is happening. I think the term we keep us safe, it applies to New Orleans so much because we try to do that all the time. Hey, y'all. I'm Erin Haynes, the host of The Amendment, a brand new weekly podcast on gender, politics, and power brought to you by the 19th News and Wonder Media Network. You've probably heard the news that this election year, our democracy is at stake. On The Amendment, I'm breaking down what that actually means, specifically for the marginalized folks who depend on our democracy the most. This is a show that dives past the headlines and gets clear on the unfinished work of our democracy. Listen to The Amendment now, wherever you get your podcasts. Tony, Michelle, Kaya, and Mariah all feel connected to the South because of where they were raised. And they've chosen to stay and build their trans communities there. But for some people, the South is a place where they've landed. I grew up in roughly four, five different you know, areas. So I, I was, was raised in areas of Kentucky, Ohio, Georgia, and Pennsylvania as well. Jay Corporal is a Southerner too. But he didn't really have a hometown because his family 
didn't have the means to settle anywhere. So I grew up very, very poor. The poverty was extreme. One house didn't even have a bathroom. It was an outhouse. I'm 37. So that kind of gives you an idea. I, I was born in 1983. So a lot of people, when I tell them this, they're like, is he in his 50s? Because they believe if you're born in the 80s, 90s, you're good. You know, you have microwave, you have a house, you have a bed, you have your, you know. I did not have those things, you know, very high poverty. We lived out in the middle of nowhere often, by farms, on farms. And so farm life was my life. On top of that, Jay's gender meant that he didn't really fit in anywhere. A very religious family. The bad kind. The kind that was very strict. It was, this is what little girls do, and you're not acting it, and we're going to abuse you. And I was a very rebellious, dominant type, so it did not work out for them or me. I always thought I was a boy. I didn't really understand why anyone thought I was anything else. It would confuse me. It taught me that you don't share that. You don't talk about it. You just kind of do what everyone wants you to do because that's how you get attention and love. From there, it was just denial, struggle, depression. It was bad. I became homeless twice. The longest time I was homeless often I was eight years. The first time it was uh, being kicked out at 17. Homeless. The very moment you leave the home, I had nothing. I had nobody. Unlike Mariah and Kaya and Tony Michelle, Jay didn't find a family of other trans people. He felt really isolated. And something that people don't realize, when you do become homeless, which is usually three steps away for everybody, if you're trans, it's two, you you get stuck in it. And you sometimes do things that are self-sabotaging to keep you homeless. And it's a struggle that a lot of people don't realize. If they see people who are homeless for multiple years, five, ten plus years, and they think, oh, they're just, they're mentally ill. Something's wrong with them. They like it. No. It's hard to get out of it, especially if you don't have loved ones. And I didn't. I kicked everyone out because I couldn't trust them. That thing about being two steps away from homelessness if you're trans... That's real. One in five trans people experience homelessness in their lifetime, according to the National Center for Transgender Equality. And despite some advances in trans civil rights law nationally, that number is actually growing. But I did get better. Went back to school. I got my life back, uh, health back, things like that. I was able to transition for a short time hormonally. I had to stop due to just being homeless. And you can't just live anywhere and transition. Being a person of color, I had to be real careful and wait to transition. And that hurt, but I had to do it. I kept telling myself, it'll happen. It'll happen. And eventually, it did happen for Jay. But when it did, he didn't have to move to New York or San Francisco. He didn't even move to a northern city. 
the reason I went to Virginia is because I never saw the beach. It was one of my little bucket lists that helped me get out of depression, at least bad depression. So I looked at different places that had beaches and I tried to see communities, like LGBTQ communities. I tried to find a place that might have been safe for me as a person who's not white. And it looked like Virginia was the best place for me. Some folks, especially in the North, might be surprised that a black trans person moved to Virginia on purpose. After all, Aurora called Virginia a sneaky place. But at the same time, the South is changing because black, brown, and trans people are changing it. I'ma come back poppin' with my ones. Middle uh-huh. fingers stay gleaming like the sun. My uh-huh. job is to uplift the girls. They gon' be embraced like a woman. It's almost yeah. like, oh, okay, well, all the things that I heard about Richmond must just be in the past and have since been resolved because this city is really vibrant, seems to be very LGBT friendly, predominantly brown. And yes, I've been very fortunate to live in Richmond because as a black and trans person, I can walk down the street with a queer flag sticking out of my hair and holding hands with a person I love and not hear anything. Unfortunately, too many of the spaces that used to make Aurora feel at home, they're changing too. And these new changes, they aren't so welcoming to Black trans folks. I live in a community called Jackson Ward, which is a historically Black community and was really kind of the Harlem of the South. It's where Maggie Lena Walker was born and lived. The first Black woman, I believe the first Black person or the first uh, woman to be the president of a bank. And it was St. Luke's Penny Savers, I believe. So I live in a community that is entrenched in Black history. Our murals are dedicated to Black figures in history and they're everywhere. And then you're now seeing um, more and more affluent white uh, residents here which I have no problem with. It's just that since they came, it's harder to pay rent here. And um, if you owned a house in this area, maybe your property taxes will change because of the, the value of the neighborhood because there's been a lot of construction here, a lot of high-rise apartments, a lot of homes being renovated. And this was a neighborhood that was feared. When I first moved here, people would ask me in coded ways like, oh, is it safe there? Is it like... You know, is it quiet? Things like that. And it's a great neighborhood. I love this neighborhood. It's beautiful, but I do fear being priced out of it. Neighborhoods like Jackson Ward in Richmond are being gentrified as white people return to the urban spaces they once abandoned. And this type of displacement is especially painful because it was so hard for her parents to even get a house in Richmond in the first place. Richmond, Virginia, in the 90s, was experiencing extremely high crime rates. Those crime rates were being associated with Blackness, and my father, being Black, had hurdles. And those hurdles made our life harder than it would have been had I had two white parents. My mom would show up to get housing for us so that we can live stable lives, and she would apply and get approved. And then my dad would finally come to look at the apartment and they would see that they are mixed race. And then my father was met with hostility and exclusion. I mean, the last month has been 
the culmination of people getting really tired of the polite version of Richmond. Where we don't talk about things and we sort of are just bystanders to our own oppressive systems. All over the South, people are getting tired of being polite. That's why we want to close our episode in Memphis, where people have been tired of being polite for a long time. I grew up here in Memphis, Tennessee, where we've had a lot of historic moments in the civil rights movement happen here. And I think that that played a huge role in how I became this activist that everyone sees out in the world. Like a lot of the trans women and femmes we've met on our show, Kayla Gore found activism through her experiences doing sex work. I would say about 10, maybe 11 years ago, I was doing sex work. I was doing survival sex work here in Memphis. I was homeless. And I was introduced to this group called Mid-South Peace and Justice Center. And it's one of the oldest organizations that have been doing um, civil rights work that I know of, especially here in the South uh, in Memphis. And I was introduced to the group called HOPE, which is Homeless Organizing for Power and Equality. Initially, I didn't go to those meetings with the intention of any type of change for anybody not even myself. I was told there was food at the meetings and I was homeless. Like the money that I was making from doing survival sex, that money was being utilized for recreational activities. It was utilized for my scarce housing and food was just not one of those things I could really afford. And this was an opportunity to get free food. So I went, the food was good and I kept coming back for the food. And then one day I ended up at an action and we were standing on corners with signs and we were protesting some injustices when it came to housing of folks who were dealing with mental health disorders and they were being preyed upon by the staff for sexual favors and just being out there that ignited something in me. I was like, oh, we're not just coming to this meeting space and talking about these things. We're actually strategizing at these meetings to make this big change. And from then on, I've been advocating for the rights of people experiencing homelessness, especially trans folks. Kayla's first step towards becoming a housing justice activist was working at an LGBT community center. But she came to realize that the housing solutions created by the city weren't meeting the needs of trans people. We had individuals who would come in or who would call seeking emergency housing. And, you know, I have a list, you know, that I've created of these emergency housing options, which I want to say at that time, there were about 81 beds in the city of Memphis with a population of about 775,000 people. That's not enough beds, one. And none of those beds were designated for LGBT people, more specifically trans folks. And the conversations that I would have with the intake personnel at these places would be about genitalia, where a person would be sleeping, you know, how do we keep other people safe from them, you know, and with housing, trans people already experience discrimination. 
for some folks, their landlords didn't know or realize that they were transgender until they had signed leases and they had been living there. And this was an opportunity for those landlords who have their own personal bias against trans folks to, you know, evict them. You know, you're three days late. You have to go. So Kayla got creative. It was definitely like just a thought, just an idea. We posted a GoFundMe and it just it just took off. It took off and we've nearly raised almost a half a million dollars to date to actually build 20 tiny homes for trans folks here in Memphis, Tennessee. 20 tiny houses, all for trans people. It seems so simple. If people can't get housing, build more housing. Of course, it's expensive and there's lots of red tape. So we literally just submitted our variance application. And the variance application is basically asking the city to say it's okay for us to modernize the space as long as we're fitting into the ordinance when this house was actually built. But Kayla's determined. She knows this is her legacy. Okay, so last question. Will you talk about what is next for you? Like, what what is the future hold for you? Uh, 20 tiny homes. <laughs> the future holds 20 tiny homes. That's one thing for sure. It's her future. And it's just the start of a more hopeful future for trans people in the South. That's all I can really honestly think about is, like, continuing the fight for liberation in whatever sense that makes for me, my body, my spirit, my soul. Uh, whatever that looks like. I can't be like 100% like, this is what it's going to be. But I can definitely say 20 tiny homes. (laughs) Kayla's carrying on a Southern legacy of Black survival and trans survival. There's just this feeling of being in the South and knowing that people like Martin Luther King and Rosa Parks endured so much in the South and there's so much work still to be done in their names. And I want to carry that over. And I can't do that, you know, living in the Midwest. I can't do that living up North. There's certain work that you can only do in the South. And I think that the South deserves people like me. was Kayla Gore, Jay Corpru, Aurora Higgs, Tony Michelle Williams, Kaya Concepcion, and Mariah Moore. You also heard protest tape from Richmond-based radio reporter Mallory Nopain of Radio IQ. This is Transcripts, a podcast from the Treader Trans Oral History Project, a program of the University of Minnesota. This episode was funded by a grant from Virginia Humanities. You can find out more about us, plus your full interviews with all today's speakers at bit.ly slash transcriptspod. And if you want to help more folks find the show, please rate and review us or share the show with a friend. It really helps us grow. Black female and gay, and somehow still found a way. I found a way.
For transcripts, I'm Merle Bean. And I'm Andrea Jenkins. Thanks for listening. The lead producer of Transcripts is me, Cassius Adair. Merle Beam is the senior project scholar and producer. Rachel Madsen is the managing producer. Myra Billen-Fibbs is our production assistant, and Lars McKenzie is our digital director. Eliza Edwards did additional transcription for this episode. The sound design is by Sam Leeds with Ariana Martinez, with musical direction by Homo Ground. You heard music by Brand New Key, Delish to Goddess, Special Interest, Chaos, Mama Duke, and Data, Data, Data. And go check out the visual artist and writer, Faye Hernandez, who designed our podcast logo. They have a great new book of poetry out. You should read it. Special thanks to Lavelle Ridley, Kai Pyle, One Anonymous Reviewer, and Tuck Woodstock. Thank you also to Mara Laser and Cookie Woolner for additional scene tape from New Orleans and from Memphis. And finally, thank you to everyone who supported us over the last few months. We really appreciate your feedback and your generosity. The Transcripts Podcast is a project of the Treader Transgender Oral History Project, which is based at the University of Minnesota Libraries. Major funding for this episode came from Virginia Humanities. Thank you so much for listening. Stay safe. When we talk about these monuments and we talk about Mississippi removing the Confederate flag, it's something that we never thought would ever happen, but it's starting to happen. And that is through the uprisings and the rioting. I hear people all the time talk about rioting and all of this. And I'm, you know, Martin Luther King said, riots are the voice of the unheard. And for so long, Black people, Black trans people, we have been unheard. And so, yeah, while it's happening, I'm starting to see change. And it makes me, you know, it gives me a little bit of hope.